I wasn't ready yet. <laughs> I thought we were singing one more. <laughs> so last week, we uh, grab your Bibles, by the way, open up to the book of Daniel. We're continuing uh, this series, uh, Living with uh, Character and Conviction. And um, <clears throat> last week, we began looking at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those, of course, the Babylonian names for Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And those guys were put in a, a terrible situation. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had made this monstrous golden image, gathered all the political and civic leaders together, and then demanded that they bow down and worship uh, this statue under the penalty of death by burning. And to me, the pinnacle of the story, and this is where we, we stopped last week, the pinnacle of the story was when the three men were brought before the king, given that second chance to obey the king's edict, and uh, instead they stood firm and declared, if it be so, our God, and normally you know, see the verses up on the screen, but uh, you'll, you'll just have to find them in your Bible and follow along. If, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That would be chapter 3, verses, I think, 17 and 18. And that statement that they made was in response to the challenge uh, that the king had issued when he emphasized his own power uh, to destroy them when uh, he said that anybody who doesn't obey, and if they wouldn't obey his command, then he asked, well, what God can, uh, is there who can deliver you from my hands? He, he's issuing the challenge. And, and they told him, our God. Our God can do that. He is more powerful than you. If he decides to free us, then he'll free us. But then they added, even if he doesn't, even if he chooses not to deliver us, be it known to you, king, we're not going to bow down. We are not because it would be wrong. Whether God frees us or, or whether it leads to our, our death, we are not going to do what is wrong? We will not bow down. They were not going to presume that God would deliver them because sometimes God in his uh, mysterious wisdom and purposes does allow his people to, to suffer and, and even to be martyred. Um, we know that that's the reality. But either way, they were going to stand firm for God. They were going to hold true to his word. And then that brings us up to where we left off uh, last week, and, and that defiance of the king uh, made him furious. And he's like, well, you think your God can save you? Well, I'll show you. And so he, he orders the furnace to be heated up seven times more than it normally is. And, and whether that furnace was a kiln for baking bricks or uh, 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 for curing, uh, smelting gold, uh, what that means is it was hot. Okay, it was, it was really hot. And uh, uh, he was uh, so angry, he had them bound in ropes right in all of their clothes. And then he grabbed some of the valiant warriors from his, his army, and he had them rush these guys up the ramp to toss them into the furnace. And, and the flames were so hot, as these soldiers rushed to obey the king, the, the heat actually slew the soldiers. 
uh, and, and yet the three men went tumbling into the furnace. Now, I, I've often wondered, I mean, I've heard this uh, account, this story from, from the time I was a, a tiny kid. I've often wondered, what was going through the mind of those three guys during all of this? I mean, they defied the king. They, they made their stand. They'd already resigned themselves to whatever the will of God was, right? Uh, and at this particular moment, it looked like his will was for them to die. And they're being bound in the ropes. They're being tossed on the shoulders of these soldiers and hauled up the ramp. What was going through their mind? Next thing they know, they're tossed into the furnace. So imagine their shock when nothing happens. Well, I mean, I mean, something happened. The ropes that were binding them uh, disappeared. Presumably, they were burned up by the heat of the fire and the thing. So, so the the ropes were gone, and and so that allowed them to you know you know walk around uh, in the furnace uh, free and easy, burning coals under their feet, flames leaping up their body, but nothing happening. No no burn, no heat. And, and actually, a, a second thing was happening. Uh, this was something that the king himself noticed through that, that door uh, at the bottom. Verse 24, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, Well, duh. <laughs> well, actually they said, Well, certainly, O king. But it meant the same thing. Uh, uh, and... Uh, there were two things that were astounding the king in, in, in this vision, or not vision, this sight that he saw. First, that the guys were up walking around, fancy free, no harm, nothing, nothing going. They were happy. And second, there was a fourth guy with them because he was pretty sure he only threw three in. And he said, look, I, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without any harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, the, the Bible never tells us who this fourth person in the flames was. Uh, it, it could have been an angel uh, sent to protect them. There's many scholars that think that it was Jesus Christ himself in what they call a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, which is just a fancy way of saying Jesus showing up on earth in a body prior to the time he was born uh, as a baby with a body. Uh, and... and uh, if you were to ask me, I would tell you, I don't know. Because uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. And it really doesn't matter to me because what it was, was God showing up. Right? The king had demanded, what God can save you from my hand? And, and, and Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of creation. The God of Mercy and grace who saves us from our sins, from our sins. That, that God, the one and only true God, shows up and says, who can save from your hand? Well, how about me? I, 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 can, I can do this. Do you want to know who's more powerful than your command, who's stronger than your edict king? I am. I am the one and true God that can save. That's, that's what was happening. God was showing up. And Nebuchadnezzar actually seems to get that point. Um, 
he calls to the, to the three and tells them to come on out of the furnace because, you know, he wasn't going to go in and get them. And, and uh, so they come sauntering out. And presumably at this time, the fourth, the fourth man uh, disappears. And the king and all the high officials, and, and I'm assuming those tattletales that had first turned them in, they all surround them and, and start examining them and, and just looking them over closely. And not a hair on their head was damaged, not even, not even singed. They were 100% okay. Their clothing wasn't burned. In fact, it didn't even smell like fire. And if you've ever been around a campfire, you know what a miracle that was. I mean, it, it, everything was perfect. And all of this causes the king to issue a, a decree. He says, therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no God who is able to deliver in this way. Now, keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar is a polytheistic person, right? Meaning he, he believes in and worships lots of gods. So he's not necessarily uh, giving up on all his pantheon of other gods at this point. He's just saying, well, this particular god, he's the one who has shown the power to, to even stop the king in his tracks. He, he's the one who, who can uh, do that. And, and I think that's important to keep in mind as we move from chapter 3 into chapter 4 and the account that we get there because as you're just reading through the Bible, chapter 4 begins uh, with an expression of praise and you might think that this incident with the fiery furnace has caused Nebuchadnezzar to become a a, a believer in in the one true God. Because look at the way chapter 4 begins. It says, It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. So it sounds like, man, he's, he's praising God now. He, he's figured this out. But, but as you read chapter 4, you realize that this, this expression of praise... Uh, was not evoked from him because of what happened in the fiery furnace, but because of another incident that took place in his life. And and we don't have a timeline, uh, an exact timeline for chapters 3 and 4 in Daniel, right? Chapter 1, we knew that took place in 605 B.C. because that was the year that uh, Babylon um, first entered into and, and took captive uh, Israel and, and carted off some of the cream of the crop back to, to Babylon. And uh, that was also the year that Nebuchadnezzar went from being a general to king because his father had passed away. So that year is pretty well set out. And, and then uh, chapter 2 took place three years after that. So that'd be 602 because, you know, since it's BC, you go down with numbers. Um, so 602. Uh, chapter 3. Nobody knows exactly when that happened in the fiery furnace. Some scholars on very scant uh, information believe that it might have been about 15 years later uh, because that's when Nebuchadnezzar went back uh, to Israel for the third time. 
kept, kept putting down uh, uprisings there. And the third time, he just got tired with them and just wiped out the whole country and took them back. And, and maybe after that point is when he feels like, hey, I don't have to pay attention to this God of Israel because he's nothing. And, and so maybe that's when this fiery furnace issue took place. We don't know that. What we do know is that Nebuchadnezzar ruled for 43 years. So, so a fairly lengthy rule. And, and it's assumed that uh, what we read here in chapter 4 took place towards the end of his reign. Um, and, and so there's probably a lengthy period of time between the fiery furnace and what happens here in chapter 4. And, and part of that is because this is the last we hear about Nebuchadnezzar, so it probably is towards the end of his reign. But also there's a clue in, in chapter 4 when it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my, pa- in my palace. Okay? We know for the, the first half or actually more of his reign, he was a busy guy. He, he was expanding his empire, so he's off on these campaigns, capturing other countries. Twice, or you know, two more times, he had to run down to Israel to, to take care of uprisings there. Twice, he had to go down to Egypt to take care of revolts that were taking place there. Uh, he was expanding his kingdom. He was consolidating his power. Uh, he was also building uh, Babylon into this magnificent capital city and, and palace. And all of that takes time, but this verse seems to indicate that all of that stuff is in the past, right? His kingdom is established, his rule is solidified, and everything is clicking along like clockwork for him now. He is at ease, he says, in his palace and flourishing, right? His business is good. His investment portfolio is prosperous. His 401k is healthy and his wallet is fat. Okay? He is happy. But then, then he has another pesky dream. A bad and troubling dream that throws a monkey wrench into all of this peace and tranquility thing that he thought he had going on. So once again, he brings in all of the wise men of Babylon, right? The, the conjurers and magicians and sorcerers, uh, sorcerers and soothsayers and all that kind of stuff to interpret the dream for him. And, and this time, <clears throat> unlike the previous dream, he actually tells them what was in the dream, but these guys were unable to come up with an interpretation for him. And finally, Daniel shows up, and now Nebuchadnezzar's like, oh, okay, now I'm, I'm relieved because he says, oh, Belteshazzar, remember that was his Babylonian name, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with this interpretation. You, you can do it, Daniel. You, you tell me what it is. And so then the king relays his dream to Daniel. He says, I, I saw this, this great and mighty tree. It, it was huge. It was so big that it was visible all over the world. And, and the leaves were, were glorious, providing cooling shade. You know, remember, this is a desert country, so uh, the, it was providing uh, uh, des- uh, uh, shade for all, all the creatures. They found shelter under its branches. The fruit of the tree was abundant. It was food for all the birds and all the animals of the world were, were taken care of by this tree. It was awesome. But then this being uh, that Nebuchadnezzar describes as a holy one, a watcher, uh, descended out of heaven, and he had this terrible pronouncement. He said, chop down the tree, 
Cut off the branches, strip the foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. And then this watcher went on to say that the stump, the the roots of of the tree, they should remain with with a band of bronze and iron around it and and that it would remain there. But then, as often happens in a dream, you've probably experienced uh, this yourself, the imagery suddenly changes and the stump goes from being a stump to a person. And and because the the, uh, angelic uh, being goes on to say, uh, and let him... Not the stump, but it says, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the grass uh, of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And and then this watcher goes on to explain exactly why this was going to happen to him. He says, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and he bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. So, so that, was, that was his dream. Nebuchadnezzar shared all that with, with Daniel and, of course, with the wise men that had been there beforehand, right? And, and you've got to figure how these Babylonian conjurers would, would not have been able to come up with some interpretation because it all seems pretty straightforward to us uh, what that means there, right? Especially since the reason for the dream is explicitly stated. Here's the purpose of the dream. You know, the tree is, is so that you'll understand this, this thing. And, and, and I think it's more likely that these conjurers, they just didn't want to say what they thought it meant because it was bad news for the king. And who wants to tell bad news to the king? You know, that's not good for your health. And, and so they thought they would just skip out on that. And actually, Daniel didn't want to tell the king the bad news either, but Daniel didn't want to tell him because he cared for the king. He cared for the man, which, by the way, I think is a, is a really good example for us, right? Your boss may not be a Christian, but do you care about him, about her? Do you, do you pray for them? Do you seek their well-being? Do you do your best work for them and then look for openings and opportunities to be salt and light to them. That, that's exactly what Daniel was doing for his pagan boss, this king. He cared about the man. And I, and I think that's a good example for us in our workplace. Daniel cared so much that the text says he was appalled by what this vision meant. And he couldn't bring himself to speak for a couple of minutes. In fact, it was Nebuchadnezzar himself who has to be the one to break the ice for Daniel and say, come on, it, it, it's okay. I can tell by your face it's bad news, but I can take it. I, I can handle the truth. So go ahead and tell me what this means. And, and so Daniel told him, he said, you, king, you, you're, you're the tree. You've become great. Your influence uh, is all over the world, and, and, and it's under your power that, that people are, are being cared for. You're, you're the tree. Uh, but you are going to be chopped down and turned into a lunatic, okay? Um, he didn't actually use the word lunatic uh, um, uh, or, or, or mental illness, but uh, that's exactly what was going to happen to the king. Uh, modern psychology would call what, what the king experienced here uh, boanthropy, 
which is a, 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 a specific mental illness that causes the person to think that they're an animal. Uh, specifically, uh, a cow or, or some other uh, thing like this where you, you go around eating grass, you avoid human contact, you obviously neglect personal hygiene and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it's, it's fairly rare, but there's cases of it even today. Um, this insanity, uh, Daniel says, would last for a period of seven times. Now, it's not exactly uh, defined what a period of time was, but most commentators believe that that one period of time equals one year, so this would last for seven years. And Daniel, in his explanation to the king, put it this way, that you, you king, you're going to be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heavens, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever, whomever he wishes. Now, because Daniel cared about Nebuchadnezzar, and because he had built this relationship with him, and because he was looking for ways to be salt and light in this man's life, he goes on to offer the king some advice. He says, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Uh, basically, he was telling the king, you, you need to repent. And, and, and having uh, a care for those in need, the poor, is an evidence of that changed heart, of that repentance. It's not all about you anymore. And you would think, I mean, you would think, after seeing everything Nebuchadnezzar has seen, he, he, he knew that Daniel could properly interpret dreams. Remember from his first dream of the giant statue he's seen? He'd seen uh, God save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. You would think, after all these things he had seen from God, that he would take this seriously and repent. But he didn't. Because the text goes on to tell us that 12 months later, so God, God pronounced this this thing of judgment, but, but he gave him plenty of time to change and repent, but he didn't. Twelve months later, the king was walking on the roof of his palace, which, again, that's not unusual because the roof of your palace or your roof of your house was your patio back then, uh, your, your chance to catch uh, a breeze, and, and it says, the king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? That doesn't sound like somebody who's repented from their pride, does it? And this was no idle boast that he was making. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had built an awesome capital city, right? One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which he built for his wife. 
she was uh, f- from the mountain countries. Now she's out living in the desert. And, and the story is that she missed the mountains. And so he built into the side of his palace uh, this, this entire mountain of greenery, trees, shrubs, vines, flowers, making a mountain in the middle of the city, the hanging gardens of Babylon, fed by an aqueduct system and, and a pump well from, uh, from the Tigris River. And um, it was an amazing feat of engineering and beautiful uh, according to depictions. That was in the city. He had this huge promenade uh, through the main gate, all tiled, animals in tile all along it. That was the victory uh, march where they were coming in. The, the walls of the city, uh, which they've excavated, were, were 40 feet tall, 23 feet wide. That's wide enough on top for defenses that a four-horse chariot could do a U-turn and have plenty of room. It's It's incredible. his throne room, okay? No other purpose except for to hold his throne and to make you feel small was a, was a 56 feet by 171 feet big. So when you wanted to, this room is 50 feet wide and 40, well, 50 feet this way and 40 this way. So, so a little bit wider and then four and a half more of these rooms. So you have to walk in that big empty place to see the king on his raised throne and stuff to make you feel tiny. I mean, it, it was a magnificent city. Uh, they, they found one of the gates of the city, the Ishtar Gate, 35 feet tall the gate was. It's covered with 557 tiled animals on an azure blue black background of tile. Absolutely magnificent. This was no my, minor boast that he made. His heart was filled with pride in what he had done. And the Bible tells us that even as those words, is this not Babylon the great, which I have made, even as those words were on his lips, the judgment of God was carried out against him. He lost his senses. He was driven from the palace and he lived like an animal for seven years or seven periods of time, whatever that length of time was. But then we read, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures for." from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody can question God in what he chooses to do. This is a guy who just spent seven years eating grass out in the wilderness. I I wonder, did... Did Nebuchadnezzar become a true believer in God? There's really not enough evidence in the text to tell us one way or the other. But, but I have my suspicions that, that maybe we'll see this guy in heaven. Now, we can't guarantee it because he has this history of saying great things about God and then returning to polytheism. So, so we, we don't know. But God got his attention, didn't he? I think there's two very clear lessons for us in this text. 
And they're both stated right in the text themselves. The first one comes from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37 of chapter 4 where he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now when you take these last two stories together, it's pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar had a pride issue, right? I mean, it takes a lot of guts to issue a challenge that says, what God can save you from my hand, thinking that you are more powerful than God. And then in this episode, I mean, he's all puffed up about his accomplishments, the things he has done, the works of his hand. He believed he was the most powerful being in all the world. And in both instances, God showed him that he was wrong. That God knows how to humble the proud. And, and you know, pride is a sneaky sin that tries to entangle us even as believers. Uh, that's why there's so many warnings in Scripture about it. The, the Apostle John cautions us that the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And, and you know, we may not have the accomplishments of, of, of King Nebuchadnezzar, but it's pretty easy to get that I done good feeling, isn't it? If we start believing in ourselves and our abilities and our accomplishments without giving God his proper place and due, that's pride. And 1 Peter 5, 5 tells us God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, as Nebuchadnezzar found out, when God is opposed to you, bad things can happen. So a question for us. Has God been trying to get your attention to humble you in some area of your life? I mean, we always have to be on guard against pride in our lives. Is there some area where you've not been giving God his proper recognition, where you've been just a little puffed up and saying, I got that down. I'm, this, I'm doing good here. That type of thing where you say, I got it figured out. I, I can handle this. I can take care of it on my own. See, Scripture tells us everything we are, everything we have, everything we achieve comes from the hand of God. And we need to constantly recognize that in our life. You know, parents, we, we can help our, our kids learn this and our grandkids learn this early on, right? By, by always relating their gifts and their abilities and their accomplishments back to God. When you praise them, help them to learn to praise God. We need to constantly remind ourselves it all comes from Him. 
and therefore he deserves all the glory. And if we don't, well, God knows how to humble the proud. The second lesson, this one actually comes from several verses because it's, it's repeated multiple times in the text. You know, in modern day with the computers, uh, when, they, when they work, um, uh, we, have, we have lots of different ways that we can choose to emphasize a point, right? You can bold print it. You can change the font to a different font so it stands out or, or, or uh, a different size font. You can highlight it in yellow. You can do all kinds of things to, to put it all capitals, you know, all this kind of stuff to just get that emphasis. Back in this day, the way you emphasize something is you repeated it. And oftentimes word for word. Well, you have one phrase that's repeated like four different times in this short text. And it says this, that Nebuchadnezzar would be humbled until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. See, Nebuchadnezzar, he thought he was king because of his greatness. He was only king because God ordained it. And he had to understand that God is the one who's in control. And as I said from the very beginning of this series, I mean, that's a major theme throughout the book of Daniel. So we've already mentioned that a couple of times, and we're going to mention it a couple more times before we're done. It's a key lesson for us if we're going to live with character and conviction in this world. Even when, even when appearances might give the opposite impression, like when you're about to be tossed into a burning fire or furnace, God is still in control. God is still the ruler over the realm of mankind. And, you know, this, this can be hard for us to accept because somehow we've gotten this, this wrong bit of thinking in our head that if, hey, God's in control, that means nothing bad's going to ever happen to me. And that is not what Scripture teaches. But it does teach that because God's in control, he'll be with you through the water, through the fire, through the flood. And that he can take even those negative and bad things and turn them for good, use them for his glory. If we would just but seek him in that. But, but this chapter is actually different than God being in control when something bad's happening, right? When life is good, when you're on top, when everything's going great, it's important time then to call to mind the truth that God is in control. Because sometimes when his blessings flow, we forget. When everything goes your way, when life's smooth, sailing along just smoothly, when the kids uh, are doing well, when the husband actually remembers to put the toilet seat down, you know, when, when things are going right, we... we we can push God to the background right behind all those blessings that we're enjoying. Now, obviously, I think these two lessons go hand in hand because oftentimes when we forget to give God this glory is because of our pride, right? Uh, those things are going on. But sometimes it's just negligence. We get so busy enjoying the good th gifts of God that we forget to stop and give thanks to the giver of those gifts. So what can you praise God for today? Maybe something that you've neglected to thank Him for. And if not, 
then I would encourage you, keep on praising God day in and day out because God is in charge of the realm of mankind. And every good gift you have comes from his hand. Let's pray. Father God, again, we thank you for these accounts from Daniel's life. Uh, we're so thankful for your word that you have given us. We pray that um, we would be encouraged to remember at all times that you are in control. And therefore, we would not allow our pride to rise up, um, take hold of our heart, to think that it's because of our abilities, our goodness, our skills that we have accomplished anything, but that it is always from your hand. And that every good thing we have is a gift from you. And may you receive the glory and the honor and praise for all those things. We pray this in Jesus' name.